And I chose this passage because I wanted to show you what's in my heart. And I wanted to point you more than anything else to the bigness and the faithfulness of God that never changes. So to that end, please take your Bible and let's go to Philippians chapter 1. This morning I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you'll be able to find that passage on page 921. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. It, it, it's so particularly emphasized in such a way that it's not as apparent in his other letters. As you were following along, you, you would have realized that his language is powerful and his tone is affectionate. And as I read these opening words from the Apostle Paul about his heart toward the Philippian church, it deeply resonated with my own heart and my own affection for you, Grace Fellowship Church. So as my last sermon, I want you to know, Grace Fellowship Church, that I hold you in my heart. And this morning, I want to express my gratitude for you, my hope for you, my love for you, and my prayer for you. Let me begin with expressing my gratitude for you. Look with me at verse 3 of Philippians 1. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. now just to give you a little bit of context as to what's going on in this letter, when, when Paul is writing this letter, he is doing so from a prison cell because he was arrested for preaching the gospel. He's shackled in chains. He's stripped of his freedom. There are enemies of the gospel all around him, and the prospect of death before him. And yet, in such a dire situation, a man you would expect to be sorrowful and overwhelmed with discouragement and fear is found with gratitude and joy in his heart. There's something that doesn't make sense about this situation. 
Why? What, what is compelling Paul to feel this way? Well, he says it in his letter here. It's all because of the Philippian church. Even though his situation was deeply troubling, as Paul remembers and calls to mind this church, he is moved to gratitude to God, and he lifts up prayers of joy. Now, I love how one author talked about Paul's emotions and Paul's feelings in this text. He called it a defiant joy. This is a joy that defies all reasoning. This is a joy that defies and transcends the circumstances. This joy rises above his difficult situations, and this joy rises above the church's imperfections. If you know anything about the Philippian church, then you know that this is by no means a perfect church. Later in the letter in chapter 4, Paul would go on to directly address this division and disagreement that was happening between two sisters in the faith. And so, by that example alone, this church had its own problems and blemishes. But it did not rob Paul of his joy and gratitude for this church. As he remembers them, as he prays for them, all of his prayers are made with joy. And it's for all of them. He's not leaving a single person out. He's talking about the whole Philippian church. As he remembers all of them, his prayers are made with joy. Verse 5, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we know about this first day that Paul is referring to because it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, what we have is Paul's first time visiting this great city of Philippi, and if you recall, if you're familiar with the story, you know that it wasn't a pleasant visit. It starts off really well with the conversion of Lydia, a seller of purple goods. Paul is preaching the gospel, and, and the Lord graciously opens up her heart to hear Paul's words, and, and she's saved and baptized. But shortly after that, there's this harassing demon, and, and Paul casts out the demon, and because of that, Paul and his fellow missionary are arrested. They're dragged before the rulers, they're beaten before the crowds, and they're thrown into prison. But do you remember what happens next when they're in prison? Acts chapter 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're singing hymns in their imprisonment. And then an earthquake erupts. The prison doors are open and, and their bonds are broken. And the jailer who would be held responsible for the prisoner's escape is about to kill himself. But Paul stops him and preaches the gospel to him. And the jailer, along with all of his family, is saved. See, these events were the start of the Philippian church. The first day is referring to, the, to, to this beginning. And, and as Paul remembers them since the beginning, since the first day, he's moved with gratitude because it is through these harsh and heavy trials that the Lord established a partnership in the gospel with this church. And this wasn't just some superficial partnership. It wasn't just a partnership by name. This was real and tangible. There was genuine fellowship and participation together in the mission of the gospel to make Christ known to the world. That's what partnership means. And he talks about it again in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. 
Later on in the letter, he says, yet it was kind of you, Philippians, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. No one else entered into partnership with Paul except the Philippian church. This is what defined their partnership. There was a a real support, care, and concern for one another. There was a real love. There was giving and receiving that made the gospel ministry possible. Kindness was shown and kindness was returned. Because of all of that, Paul is filled with joyful gratitude for the Philippians. Grace Fellowship Church, remembering you and praying for you, especially in these last few weeks, have brought great joy to my own heart. I have so many fond memories of you that I will carry with me to St. Thomas and Lord willing for the rest of my life. You know, I remember coming here just over seven years ago as a young 24-year-old who was clueless, (laughs) basically no real credibility, no real pastoral experience, but you embraced me, and you loved me, and you supported me, and you were patient with me. You graciously endured with all of my immaturities and all of my failures. You know, when I think back about my ministry here, It grieves me to think about all the ways that I've made mistakes. And I wish I was a better pastor. But you forgave me. And you even, in love, corrected me and challenged me in my shortcomings. You encouraged me and strengthened me in my successes. You always prayed for my ministry. You generously supported me financially so that I could live here and provide for my family. You showed me a steady stream of loving kindness that I will never forget. Under God's grace, I am truly indebted to the men who have invested so much in my life and trained me for pastoral ministry, but I need you to know this. I would not be where I am today without you, my beloved church. And I thank God with all of my heart for you And let me just say this as the outgoing pastor. Let me give you this encouragement and this exhortation. The way that you have treated me, please do so for those who come after me. The way that you have been patient with me and prayed for me and loved me, do the same and even more for those who take my place. They will need your kindness And they will need your love and your earnest prayers and encouragement. And at times, they will need your gentle correction and your loving rebuke. And I have absolute confidence in the Lord that you will do this, and it will be a powerful blessing in their lives. And I know this because I have been the recipient of it. The Lord has used your love for me to shape me and grow me as a minister of the gospel in more ways than I think you really know. So Grace Fellowship Church, with all my heart, I truly thank God for you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
That's my gratitude for you. Let me tell you about my hope for you. In verse 6, Paul goes on and he says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, even though Paul is separated from these believers, imprisoned for the gospel, and therefore unable to be with them in person, he never once thought that these Christians were doomed without him. As much as he wanted to be there, at the end of the day, he wasn't concerned about them because he knew with certainty that their faith ultimately didn't depend on him. Who was it? Just think about it. Who was it that opened Lydia's heart to believe in the gospel when he first arrived in Philippi? It wasn't Paul. He, he didn't have the power to make that kind of heart-transforming effect. Paul was merely a, a messenger of God who brought the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Philippi. And so, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The good work that Paul is referring to is the good work of salvation that is ultimately God's doing. And without a shred of doubt, Paul is confident that God will complete the work that he began in them. He, he's not one to get distracted. He's not one to disengage. He's not one to run out of steam and interest or become lazy and careless as we so often are. The faithful God will always, without fail, finish what he started. And that hasn't changed today. God is the one who ultimately saved you. God is the one who is ultimately sanctifying you. And God is the one who will ultimately glorify you on the day of Christ's return. Are you in here today maybe struggling with your faith? Concerned about where you stand before the Lord? Brothers and sisters, this is the assurance of your salvation. Right here is the assurance of your salvation. God has saved you and he will save you completely. It was never about your own will, exertion, and strength. It was never about your own merit, performance, and credibility. It has and always will be God's good work of grace in your life. It's not your work. It's not the work of, of, of pastors and elders and other people. This is and always will be God's work. You know, leaving this church is one of the hardest things for me to do. How do you leave a church that you've grown to love with all of your heart? How do you leave behind relationships that mean the world to you, people that you care about so deeply, how does a shepherd leave behind the sheep to go shepherd another flock? You do it because you know that God is in control. You do it because you know that there is a great shepherd who will always care for his sheep. You do it because you know great is thy faithfulness and his love will never change. So in light of God's sovereignty and his unwavering commitment to you, and, and the promises here that you see that, that God will save you and he will carry you to the end, I know that ultimately I am dispensable before the Lord. 
And God can move his people wherever he wants them to be. He can move me wherever he wants me to be, and it will be okay because it has never been about me in this church. Your faith has never been about me or any of the elders in this church. There would be no hope if your faith was dependent on man. So your pastors may come and go, sometimes for bad reasons, sometimes for good reasons, and I hope this is one of them. But the one that truly matters, the one your faith is entirely dependent on, he will never leave you and never forsake you. Only God is sufficient to do all of these things. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. So as hard as it is for me to leave, I'm leaving with hope. My hope isn't in you. I think this church has the godliest elders in the world, but my hope isn't in them either. All of my hope is in the Lord and that He will carry you all the days of your life through every trial, through every valley of shadow, of death, until the day Jesus returns to take us home to glory. And on that day, we will see each other without ever having to say goodbye again. On that day, there will never be another farewell sermon to preach and another farewell sermon to hear. Brothers and sisters, I can't wait for that day. That day when we will just be together looking upon and enjoying the the infinite beauty of Jesus Christ forever. That is what God will do for his people. My hope for you is in the Lord, who is perfectly faithful to carry you and I, wherever we are in the world, to that glorious finish line. My hope is in the Lord. My love for you, is what I want to talk about next. In verse 7, Paul goes on and he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. He's talking about the feeling of gratitude and joy that's mentioned in verse 3 and 4. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. These emotions of gratitude and joy over the church were fitting because Paul held the Philippians in a special place in his heart. He cherished this church in a unique and special way. And it's not only because of their partnership from the very beginning, but it's also because they remained faithful partners with him in every and any season of his gospel ministry. Look again there in verse 7. He says, for you are all partakers. And, and that word there is actually the same word as partners. You are all partners, partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. If you know anything about Paul's ministry, you know that it's not just filled with success after success after success without any kind of hardship. Yes, there are some amazing stories like the story of Lydia and the jailer who, when he preached the gospel, he defended it and confirmed it and the people responded in faith and repentance. But there were also many times where people outright rejected the gospel 
and they went so far as to persecute him and beat him and arrest him and throw him into prison. Now, of course, we know that his imprisonment wasn't meaningless, and we know that his imprisonment wasn't a sign of defeat because even when he was in prison, the gospel was going forth. But the point here that Paul is trying to make in verse 7 is that the Philippians were made committed to him and constant in their support of him, both in the good times and in the bad times, even when he was in chains. And the irony of this whole statement is that even though he was physically chained, truly he was chained in loving fellowship with his church. Their partnership with him wasn't conditioned upon favorable circumstances and favorable outcomes. This church remained as a committed partner of grace. They stuck by him through, through thick and thin. They never abandoned him even when he was in a difficult place. And because of that, he cherished them. He so deeply cherished them in his heart. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the part of his letter where Paul puts his heart fully on display for the people to see. And he does it in the best way he knows how. He calls a witness, and that witness is God himself. To fully and clearly see into someone's heart is an impossible task for people like us. I, I mean, people can do the, the best that they can to express their, their feelings and what's in their heart with, with their words and with their actions, but even then, it's hard to show you all that is truly there. But there is one who sees it all. There is one who knows even the deepest contours of a man's heart. And so in that sense, there is no greater witness to a person's inner being and inner feeling than the one true omniscient God who sees it all and knows it all. And this is who Paul calls on as his witness to testify to his longing love for the Philippian church. He is yearning for them. He is desiring with all of his heart to be there with them. He wants to make their spiritual fellowship a physical fellowship, and that's because his love for them is so great. Look at how he describes his love at the end of verse 8. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, affection is a, is a really interesting word. In our day today, it's, it's very palatable. It's very nice sounding, but I think it sort of fails to communicate the depth and the richness of the original word that Paul is intending to use. The, the, the word that's used for affection more literally refers to the entrails, the internal organs of a human being. The King James Version translates this verse, listen to this, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. That's not that palatable, is it? But the King James Version, I think, gives us a better sense of Paul's affection, a better interpretation of what Paul is meaning to say. 
Paul is, of course, speaking metaphorically here, but he does so because he wants them to know that he loves them and that he longs for them with the deepest kind of love possible to man. He loves them with everything that is in him. He longs for them with the very core of his being. This love and longing isn't just emotional. It's almost physical to the point where he feels it in his gut. In other words, he loves them with a Christ-like love. Paul's love for this church is modeled after the unconditional, sacrificial, and powerful love that Christ has for his church. Well, friends, you know this, that this isn't some kind of flippant and superficial love. Christ's love, Christ's affection for His people is so powerful that it can shift the entire universe, that the God of this world would come into our broken world in order to bear our sins, in order to carry our sorrows, in order to take our guilt a love that is so powerful that it is willing to die for people who are undeserving. That is the affection of Christ. It is the deepest affection this world can and will ever know. This is the pure love of God. And the apostle Paul says that he loves this church and he longs for this church with this kind of Christ-centered, Christ-empowered love. The omniscient God who sees every inch of his heart is his witness to this. As I reflect on my last seven and a half years, again, I carry so many fond memories with me, but it's a weird place when you come to the end of something that you start to also feel regret of so many things that you didn't do or maybe failed to do well. One of which is to tell you more frequently as a pastor and as a brother in Christ just how much I love you. I love you, Grace Fellowship Church, and I'm going to miss you with all of my heart. And it's sad that it usually takes a farewell sermon to say that. But please know, for the last seven and a half years, I have loved you with all of my heart. I'm not even gone yet, and I already feel in my heart an intense yearning to be with you all. And if I could, I would take all of you and just go to St. Thomas together. <laughs> but I know that's not right. I know that's not right because both the city of Toronto and the city of St. Thomas needs healthy, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. So as much as I want to be with you all, there is a day coming where that will happen, but for now, we remain on mission for Christ because Jesus is worthy. But let the record show, elders, I would really like to be invited back from time to time as a guest preacher. <laughs> Church, you can hold the elders to this as well. Grace Fellowship Church, I love you. And as I hold you in my heart and remember you, here is my prayer for you. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. After Paul, having expressed his deep Christ-like love for the church, his main petition in this prayer is that the church would grow and keep growing in their love. But, but notice here, look carefully at verse 9. Notice that he doesn't specifically mention the object of their love. He doesn't pray that their love would abound more and more towards one another or toward him or towards their enemies, or even toward God. He just prays that their love would abound more and more. And the sense you get is that it keeps going more and more and more and more. And we can try to guess, even based on the context, who the object of their love is meant to be, or we could assume and rightly assume that Paul simply wants this church to abound in love in every direction. Love your spouse more. Love your children more, love one another more, love your neighbors more, love your enemies more, love your God more. His prayer is that this church would be characterized by an ever-growing love for all. But it's important to understand that he's not praying for any kind of thoughtless, uncontrolled, and misdirected love. You know, reckless love sounds poetic. It sounds nice, but that is contrary to the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. Paul prays for a love that grows, look at verse 9 again, at the end of verse 9, a love that grows with knowledge and all discernment, with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge refers to knowing truth and specifically knowing God's truth. Discernment, and and this word, it's the only time it's actually used here in the New Testament, refers to making the right moral decision when you have a vast array of options before you. You ever feel like there are more than one good options, right? How do you choose the best one? What is the right moral decision? Both knowledge of the truth and discernment are necessary ingredients to abounding and in Christian love more and more. In other words, what Paul is praying for is an increase in intelligent love, not ignorant love. Those two things are very different. Intelligent love, not ignorant love. He doesn't want them to be simply moved by what feels right in the moment. That's often what ignorant love does, and, it, and as noble as it feels, it often leads to things like not addressing sin not having the hard conversations, or speaking too much and too quickly without any kind of consideration and sensitivity towards the other person. It is an ignorant love. But intelligent love is rooted in the Bible. This love knows, Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Intelligent love knows, Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are more spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It knows, 1 Corinthians 13, that great passage of love, where love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Intelligent love 
is a holy Christian optimistic love. The more you know your Bible, the more you will grow in your love. You see, if if love is like a growing vine, then knowledge and discernment are the trellises that guide the vine and properly cause it to grow so that it would bear the excellent and pure fruit of righteousness. Without knowledge and without the regulation of discernment, love can just be chaotic and oftentimes can be harmful as well. And so he prays for this kind of intelligent love because the results of this love are as follows. Look again at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, here's the result, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Intelligent love leads to determining and doing what is truly excellent in the sight of God. It doesn't settle for just the bare minimum. Christians don't live and should not live just to do the bare minimum of love in this world. God is not worthy of that kind of love. Christian love pursues excellence, which is the best among the good. Intelligent love also leads to purity, which is freedom from sin and blamelessness, which is being above reproach and giving no offense to everyone. When Christ returns, this is how every Christian ought to be found, a holy people living holy lives. And intelligent love is the way to get there. And lastly, intelligent love results, verse 11, in being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness refers to our conduct and in doing what is good and living lives of obedience to God's Word. But but notice again here that Paul doesn't call the Philippians to themselves produce the fruit of righteousness on their own. Where does the righteous fruit come from? It ultimately comes from God through Jesus Christ, which is why God is the one who ultimately deserves the glory and the praise. That's where his prayer ends. Filled, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We cannot produce righteous fruit in our own strength. And that's why before Paul calls on the church to live a life of obedience, he wants them to know that he's praying for them because this production of excellent and pure righteous fruit is ultimately the sovereign prerogative of God. And apart from God, we can truly do nothing. So his hope is in the Lord. And his prayer is that this church would abound in love so that they would bear the right fruit that is honoring and pleasing to God. I think I'll always recall Philippians 1 and use these words to guide my prayers for you. As I have been praying, please know that I will continue to pray that by the grace of God, you would be a church abounding in intelligent love that results in excellence, that results in holiness, and that results in righteousness 
all so that God would be glorified in this church forever. Let me end my sermon by reading the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, as if they were my own words to you. Therefore, my beloved Grace Fellowship Church, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain these last seven and a half years. More than in my presence, much more in my absence, live for Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Let me pray.